Uh, dear Lord, just bless this time and prepare us, Lord, for what you have for us in this coming week and coming months and years, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So what has happened in the book of Daniel to this point? Well, history tells us you had the, the Syrians. They were the world power, but they had gotten weak like kingdoms get weak. And the Babylonians were the young ones. They were raising up, and they were powerful and threatening. And they had come against the Assyrians. It was Nebuchadnezzar and his father. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar is the king. But, but he, he started wiping out people along the, the Fertile Crescent, and he wipes out Assyria. But Assyria still has a few people, and they're calling on Egypt to, to come and join them. Babylon hears of this. They wipe out the Assyrians at Cherimish, and they come down through Israel to push back the Egyptians. And they come right over Israel. Israel's a small country. And so as they come over, as Nebuchadnezzar comes over Jerusalem, he doesn't wipe them all out at once. What he does is he takes some, some elements from the temple, and he takes their best young men or their best citizens, the smartest, the best-looking ones. And what he wants to do is very wise. He wants to inculcate them into Babylonian culture. So when he comes back over the next 10 to 15 years and he brings other Jews into Babylon, they're going to go, oh, look at these guys. We can be like them. Let's just join the culture and not rebel. Right? That was the idea. And so we looked at that in chapter 1. And so Daniel and his, his friends, probably late teens, they decide, we're, we're not going to be inculcated like that. We're going to resist all the, the king's delicacies, and we're going to keep ourselves pure to our religion. And so after that, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And as he has a dream, Daniel interprets that dream spot on. Nebuchadnezzar is impressed with that, and he makes all four of these young men high-ranked officials in the Babylonian uh, political system. So they are high-ranked guys. Now, chapter 3 actually takes place at least 15 years later. So these men are now in their 30s, and they're well-established as leaders in the community. Now, as we look at this story, Daniel is absent. Most likely, Daniel, as the second most powerful person in the kingdom, is, is on some ambassador trip or something. He's not there because we know that Daniel would not have bowed to this statue. Okay? And so we're focusing on the other three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So let's look at Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. It says, And then Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. All of a sudden, the king is building his own statue. Chapter 2 of Daniel the king had had a dream, right? And in this dream was a head of gold. We know that that represented him. But Daniel's interpretation told that king that after you, there's going to be another kingdom. It's the Medo-Persian kingdom. And then after that, there's going to be the Greek kingdom represented by the bronze. And then after the Greek kingdom, there's going to be a Roman kingdom, east and west, Rome and Constantinople right? These, these, two, these two kingdoms. And so he's foretelling world history in advance through this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, all of a sudden, a few years later, you have Nebuchadnezzar deciding to build a statue. A cupid is about 18 inches. This is how they measured it. So 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. A huge statue, but it's all gold. What is, what is he trying to do? 
He's trying to enshrine himself, right, as the world leader. It's not going to pass on to those Medo-Persian people. They're nothing right now, and they weren't anything right then. He was the powerful one. And so he's trying to force himself or give himself a legacy. And why would he do this? He's insecure, right? And this is why people force this on other people. Why, why do they kill a bunch of people in these communist countries? In order to keep power. You think about King Herod later on during the time of Christ. King Herod had his own sons put to death because he, he was worrying about them taking power from him. And this is very common. And so he's trying to enshrine himself, not just with the head of gold, but the whole statue of gold. Now, verse 2 goes on. It says, And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, and the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So what is he doing? He's bringing all his various leaders together in one place, and he wants buy-in from them. He wants them to be supporting his vision. Now, for me, um, here in our church, if, the, if I feel like the Lord's leading me in a certain direction, I talk to the staff, and then I'll gather the elders together, and then I start throwing it out to different people, you know, and leadership meetings and stuff like that, and I'm trying to gain buy-in. But he's actually trying to force buy-in, as we're going to see here in a moment. So verse 3 goes on and says, So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time that you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. He sets up a worship band, and he's setting up a worship service to himself. He's trying to force people to respect him. He's trying to force people to love him, and he's trying to force people to worship him. Do you think it's true love? Do you think it's true worship? And do you think it's true respect? You know, the little girl that's been told to sit down and the teacher pushes her down in the chair and she looks up, she goes, I might be sitting outside, but inside I'm standing up. And that's what it's like, right? And that is what's happening in this place. The only person you can control the love, the respect, the obedience switch for is yourself. You can force behavior on other people, but internally, you're the only one that can choose to love another person, right? Love can't be forced. But what is love? What's love? No, anyways. Um, what is love? Well, let's look at the, the most found, uh, funda foundational type of love. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the New Testament. God so loved the world. Okay, just a statement of fact, right? When it says the world, does it mean the rocks or the trees? Or does it mean humans? Because he wouldn't have to die for rocks and trees. They don't sin, right? 
God so loved the world. When God decided to love the world, was the world all fuzzy and pleasurable and nice? Romans chapter 5 tells us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Was it our adorability that caused God to love us or his choice? His choice. It was his choice to love us, right? And that is the most foundational type of love. So often we think of love as, you know, sex. That's the eros type of love in the Greek. We think of love as, oh, friendship, and I really enjoy you. And, and that's called phileo. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? There's the love that we have for, for our families. That's a stoge or stoge love, right? But this is called agape love. It is a love of, the, love of choice, and it is a love that depends upon the person choosing to give it. God so loved the world that he gave, that he was willing to sacrifice, that he was willing to meet our needs at great cost to himself. That is a love, and that love depends upon God aiming it at us, right? But he's not going to force us to receive it or return it. That's our choice. But his choice was to love us regardless of our cute and fuzzies, because we didn't have them. We were not lovable as we're backbiters and sinners and all these other things, right? And so for God so loved the world, what did, he, what did he do? He gave, and he has chosen to keep on reaching out to us and loving us. Now let's make this practical. It says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Husbands, when you're at the altar and you're promising God to love, what kind of love are you promising God to give? Well, it'd be nice if it was just old oh, sex, right? You know, especially for young men, right? It's not that. Oh, I promise to always have a good, friendly relationship with my wife. That's not it either. The type of love you're promising is to love your wife no matter what at great cost to yourself, right? That's called agape love. And the choice is in you, and you make that commitment to meet her needs, protect and provide for her no matter what. And how does a woman thrive most within a marriage? is by having that kind of love behind her, she can accomplish incredible things. Now, women, by nature, love. Men, we have to be told to love, and we make an actual choice to love more often, right? It's the nature of how God made us. And, and so, husbands, love. And that is a commitment, that is a choice. Now, here's the thing. My wife and I have had a few fights in the last 32 years, eh, a couple. I've never stopped loving her, but at times I really haven't liked her. You guys understand what I mean? And I can say my wife has always loved me, and there's been a lot of times that I've not been very likable. But that commitment, and even in marriage counseling, when, when two young people fall in love, the, the stats say that you know, between one and three years, it's just that feeling of love, you know, the honeymoon stage. And then what happens after that? Well, if you haven't laid down the foundation of committed love where you can build on for the rest of your life, that relationship goes away or it dies or it just barely survives, but it certainly doesn't thrive. And so that's where the purposeful part of marriage and that commitment to one another has to be built so then when those feelings aren't as intense or strong as they were early on, then the, the marriage can then grow into maturity over time, right? And that is a love of choice, but you cannot force that on someone, but you do choose to love another person. 
And so real love doesn't force someone to bow because then it's not love. And so when you see Nebuchadnezzar doing this, it's out of incredible insecurity. And he might try to fool himself in, in his brain thinking, look at these people, they all adore me. Do they adore him? No, they're merely terrified of him. This is why God doesn't force us to love him. He asks us to love him. And he gives us a choice in the matter. You know, he wants us to certainly respect him, but he wants, us, he wants to have a relationship with us that is a relationship of love. Verse 7, he goes on in Daniel 3, and it says, So at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages all adored the king. No, they didn't. But they did fall down, and they did worship the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, as we look and, and finish the book of Revelation a short time ago, and as we look at the end-time scenarios of the last day's leader that we believe is coming into being, his name is the Antichrist, and he also does what? Demands worship. Now, see if you see any similarity, similarities in Revelation 13, 15. It says, And he was granted the power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should also speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. You worship this image of the beast, the beast being the Antichrist. You worship this image of the beast or you will be killed. Sound familiar? And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or their foreheads, and no one may buy or sell except the one who has a mark on, uh, or the name of the beast or the number of his name. You can't buy or sell. Think about smart money, right, coming. But they're forced into worship. And here's the thing. The mark of the beast comes with worship. So as a Christian, if you're a Christian or if you're a, a saved during this, this period of time, you won't take the mark. I don't think you can even possibly take the mark if you're truly saved because it condemns you to an eternity without uh, separated from God, right? But it is interesting because you're forced to worship. You're forced to bow or else you're going to be killed. You know what God calls the last day's kingdom? He calls it Babylon, ultimate power, ultimate control. And they're trying to control your love, your devotion, everything about you. They're trying to control your thought life. Again, sound familiar. Okay, and so you have this image. Verse 8 in Daniel 3. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, the wise men, the, the advisors, came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. They are jealous, right? This is workplace jealousy, work, workplace politicking. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you, nor do they serve your gods, nor worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so they brought these men before the king. Remember, they've been serving him faithfully for about 15 years years. So Nebuchadnezzar is one angry guy. The problem with anger is it drives you crazy. <laughs> it 
and you make foolish decisions. It says in Proverbs 16.32, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit well than he who takes a city. Proverbs 14.16, A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of wicked intentions is hated. He's about to kill some of his best, most faithful officials that God is giving wisdom to. He's being a fool. He's being a big baby. You didn't worship me, right? Daniel 3.14, Nebuchadnezzar spoke to them saying, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at this time, and you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Now remember with me, chapter 1, God was proven by making these men healthier than the men who were eating all the barbecue and everything else that the king had. Chapter 2, God proved himself by not only interpreting the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, but revealing what it was without Nebuchadnezzar saying what it was, right? And, and he gave lip service to God then. But here he's testing God once again. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. God is able. Listen. Some people ask, can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? Stupid question. The problem is with the question, not with God. <laughs> but you need to know there are certain things God can't do. He cannot sin, and he will not offend his own character. He cannot do certain things, right? And so my definition of God able to do anything is God can do anything and will do it within his character and by his plan according to the sinful affairs of man. God will get certain things done, and then we throw a wrench in it, and what does God do? He's the master chess player, gets around it, and still fulfills his will. We have tons of prophecies that are fulfilled throughout all of history, and we always got there even though sinful man was rebelling against God the whole time. Right? He always gets to his goal. This is my God, and he is able, but he's not going to offend his own character, and he's not going to force men in a certain direction. He gets things done. This is my God. He is amazing. Jeremiah 32, 17. All Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. And the ancients looked up in the heavens. They go, God, you are amazing. And a lot of people, you know, oh, well, God doesn't exist. It's all a cosmic accident. But we know the universe started. That means it had to start somewhere. That means there was nothing, and then there was something. How did that happen? Either nothing created everything, or someone did. And someone had to design it. We were standing underneath an old oak tree last night at the, at the young men's uh, uh, retreat. And, and I looked up, and I just saw this branch that probably weighed several tons. How in the world does that branch not fall or break off? Well, it's a structure of the tree, and it's designed. And if you look at it, it's all in order. And that's just a stinking tree. One time when I was having doubts, and I was a pre-med student for uh, four years, but when I was having doubts after I'd moved out here, I'd had a few doubts. And you know what God had me do? Just lift up my hand and go like this. 
Mechanical engineering students used to have to take some of my biology classes. Why? Because they were told the human body is the most amazing machine ever created. Go figure. How does it do that? How does it lubricate itself, heal itself, and do what my mind is telling it to do? And then when I'm not thinking of it, it still survives. What? Right? And you go, but, but I do that. It's me. No, you didn't do that. You have no idea how your body works. Even if you're a medical student, you still, it's just amazing. Like, are you kidding me? Right? And if he can create the whole universe, you know, this God. And, and, and think about it, man. We live on this little speck of dust next to a medium-sized star and a medium-sized galaxy amongst billions and billions and billions of galaxies out there. And it is a hostile place. And God has given us this magnetic shield and perfect place in the universe, perfect level of oxygen. If we had more oxygen, someone lights a match, we all blow up. We have less, we, we all die of suffocation. Like, how in the world does that happen? Are you kidding? Oh, it's all random chance and mutation. Shut up. <laughs> now, here's the problem. All of it has to be designed. And where do we get gravity? I like, gravity affects everything in the universe, mass and, and motion and entropy and all and just go forever. Who designed all that? Someone had to design. And that's my God. Are you kidding me? There is nothing too hard for you. Right? And they get it. They get it. So let's talk about something that's really appropriate for us. Sanity in an insane world. Because my thing is, guys, we need to have joy in this crazy world. And it looks bad, doesn't it? And it's like, you know, Ben Shapiro's not a, not a Christian, but, but he, I, I listen to him, and I love his logic, and he says, I'm just here today to say everything is stupid. Okay, so I've quoted Ben Shapiro from the pulpit. Uh, <laughs> but a few things. God is able. That first statement. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven in a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and hills in a balance. Who has done this? It's God. He can do anything. He is able. As chaotic as it seems, we, we, it seems, we've read the end of the book and we know who wins, right? God is able. Number two, God is not only able, he's not this, just this incredible mind and power out there that doesn't care about you. He loves you. And you can trust that no matter what happens. God still loves you. Romans 8, 38 and 39, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor death nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from what? The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is amazing. There's seven billion people on this little speck of dust, right? Seven billion souls. And he desires that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's his desire because he loves every single one. Red and yellow, black and white, you're all precious in his sight. Racism is stupid, okay? Enough said. I don't have to get into all his critical race theory stupidity. What God says is true. He created us for fellowship with him. That's what he created, okay? And he loves all of us. And if all seven billion people on earth decided to pray at once, God could pay attention to every single prayer. That's an awesome God. And you know what? Every single one of us would feel like we're the most special to God. You know, my mom was an amazing lady, totally ADD lady, but very high capacity. She had six kids. You know how many of us claim to be mom's favorite? All six. But I tell you what, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. That's why John said that, right? It's amazing that God would even love me, but God loved him, and he knew what a screw-up he was, right? He loves you, and, and 
and he still loves you. Through crazy times, understand, he is able, and he loves you personally, right? And number three, he is faithful. Put the problem into God's hand, and we call that prayer. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. It's said that 90% of what you worry about, you have no control over. So why not take that 90% and go, here, God, you can do anything. I'm going to trust you with that, and I'm not going to be anxious in these crazy times. Elections are coming up. We, we hope for the best, but you know what? I hope in God. I want to vote for good politicians, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, personal responsibility, life, marriage, gender. Now, that's a new one, right? If I just vote for those four things, I'm voting the Bible, not a political party, right? And, and man, I, I can do that. I can vote God's way. And I'm just going to trust him with the results, right? He is faithful. And, and, and I need to trust him. Sanity in an insane world. And so they say God is able. God is able. And so peace doesn't come by the thinking that you can force God to do things your ways. Peace comes from the knowledge that God is smarter than you, more powerful than you, more loving than you, and you can put your life in his hand. So here's the thing. Needless to say, these three young men were facing almost certain death, and they were at, and I'm going to say relative peace. I don't know how peaceful they were, but they were relative peace because they're saying, we're going to follow God and we trust God. Okay? And that's a good place to be, that relative peace. God has got this handled. But verse 18 goes on, one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament says, but if not, I'm not going to bow to any false god. Even if God allows me to be burned up in the furnace, that's fine because I'm not doing it your way. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, in your face. That's pretty crazy, right? That's some confidence and that's some peace out of those words. Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Listen, today we need something called stubborn obedience. Okay? Stubborn obedience, not stubborn obnoxiousness. Right? Because some Christians say, well, I went to my boss and I said this, you know, and they want me to pat him on the back. I go, you've just been obnoxious. You know? <laughs> That's no. Obedience to God. That calm voice that says, I'm not going to do it that way. And if you need to fire me for not doing it this way, I just can't. And, you know, I'm sorry about it, but I'm not. I'm, I'm going to follow my God. I'm going to keep my integrity before God. That's stubborn obedience. In Job 13, 15, it says, though he may slay me, yet I will still trust in him. I'm going to obey God no matter what. No matter what the um, outcome Real faith is about obeying God no matter what the cost. The problem is God himself said this about the idols. Ten commandments, right? You're not to form an idol that you may what? Bow down before it. What are they asking them to do? It's one of the ten biggies, right? Second commandment. They're not going to do it. We need stubborn obedience today. The early church often had to choose between preaching the gospel, which Jesus said to do, or being silent. But if they pre preached the gospel, they could be put to death. Matthew put to death. Mark put to death. Luke put to death. Peter put to death. Paul put to death. 
early church father, Polycarp, said this as they were threatening to burn him for preaching the gospel. He said, for 86 years I have served him and he has never wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And they burned Polycarp. Now for us, it's like, huh, someone may put a bad comment on Twitter about me. I mean, it still hurts, right? We want to be liked. But this stubborn obedience says, I'm on God's side. I want you to like me. I don't want people to hate me. But if they put a post on me about Facebook, on Facebook because I've stood up for something good in the Lord, I need to be okay with that. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with a little suffering for God and for what is right for all of eternity? You know, had Polycarp not died in the fire, we wouldn't have that quote, and he would have died a few years later anyways. Right? What about Paul? Just kept on going and going and going and going. He might have had a few years, but now he's been 2,000 years in the presence of God. Praise God, right? Are you kidding me? We need this stubborn obedience. Be stubborn about being obeying God. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be what? Steadfast. Interpretation. Stubborn. Humans are stubborn by nature, right? Let's be stubborn in a godly way instead of stubborn towards sin and evil. So, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Stubborn. Immovable. What is that? Stubborn. Always. What is that? Stubborn. I hear Paul saying, stubborn, stubborn, stubborn. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He sees everything that you do for good, and he will not leave your good works unrewarded. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, throws a temper tantrum. And the expression on his face changed for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he spoke the command and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And then he commanded certain mighty men, his best warriors of valor, who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm going to heat it seven times harder, and I'm going to get the SWAT team, or I'm going to get SEAL team to throw you in there, man. I'm going to show. And you know what he does? It says, then these men were bound in their coats or trousers or turbans and other garments and were cast into the midst of the fiery furnace. Therefore, because of the king's command, it was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In all your stupid tantrum, you just burned up SEAL Team 6. Right? Like, knucklehead. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the form of the fourth is like the son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the midst of the fire. He's like, oh, 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 this is a powerful God. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose body the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. 
Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's lip service. And he sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any other god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, another one, that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Again, it's their God. I still got my gods. I'm still my own God. And I'm going to try to force people to worship this God in order to sustain this God that I see as powerful. He doesn't get it. Verse 30, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. For us as believers today, you are not alone in the fire. I've been through my own fires as a human being on this earth for decades. And when I look back, it doesn't feel like it at the moment, but when I look back, I realize God is with me through the hard times. I backslid in college, but I was still saved. Now, during that time, it didn't feel like God was with me. And then I look back and I realize God protected me so many times. I remember going to parties, drinking, and then waking up in my car the next day somewhere in town and I had no idea where I was. And I couldn't Google it back then. I didn't have a cell phone, right? I'm, I, like, I had to figure out where, where I was. And it's like I could have died. I was in so many stupid situations and God did protect me in miraculous ways. He was still with me. Right? And uh, I wasn't even alone even in that fire of my own making. When I got saved, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He has stubborn love, doesn't he? That love of choice towards us. In Psalm 34, verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him, and he delivers them. Now, not always, but in the Old Testament, when you see God appear in bodily form, it's either called a, a theophany or a Christophany. Personally, I believe every Old Testament appearance of God in bodily form is a Christophany. And he's called the Son of God, which is what Jesus is identified as in the New Testament. But he will never leave us, nor will he forsake us. Sometimes, even as he goes through the fire, we're not this side of heaven rescued from the fire. But listen, Polycarp's soul separated from his body, that's physical death. But Polycarp's spirit never separated from the spirit of God, that's spiritual life. So the second that your spirit, when you become a believer, connects with God through the forgiveness of your sins, you are now connected with God. You have become alive, the Bible calls it born again, or Catholics call it born from above, this connection with God. That is spiritual life. Your spirit is connecting with God. And when someone dies who's a believer, he never leaves them or forsakes them. He is with their spirit through death. And so when I gave my heart to the Lord, my life began, my spiritual life began, and it will never be interrupted. I may die physically. The Lord may come back, get back and get me. I don't know. But I will never spiritually be separated from God. And so Polycarp never was. He went through the fire. Others are rescued, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Some people die of cancer. Some people are healed of cancer, right? Now, it is interesting that Isaiah, we're in Isaiah on Wednesday nights, but in Isaiah, he was prophesying and warning the Jews 
because they were disobedient and following idols. He was warning them, don't do this, don't do this. You're going to be taken away into captivity. And he was telling them that. That was 100 years prior to this. Now they're taken away in captivity. So this is Isaiah 100 years earlier. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, the Jordan River and the Red Sea. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. But what about this part? And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. That was fulfilled 100 years later after this prophecy was made. And so understand that God is with you, and he does love you. And he wants you to know that through hard times. The interesting thing, I was talking to a man earlier from first service, and, and I said, it is interesting for us as Christians because we go through the fire and we intimately get to know God better, don't we? And unfortunately, it's not the, the easy times that we get to draw near to God. It's normally those hard times, right? But as Christians, we don't run away from trials. We run to the trial. And it tells us in Galatians 6.10, always do good to all. But Galatians 6.1 says that we're supposed to bear one another's burdens. So, so I told him, I said, you know, I'm, I'm in a blessed position as a pastor, but just being in the body of Christ, it's also a blessed position. Because not only 